Well, the first question of the Westminster Catechism is what is the chief end of man? Which is a 17th century way of saying, what are we here for? What's the point of life? What are we supposed to do with ourselves? And the answer, get your pens ready. Make sure they're working. This is it. I'm, I'm about to unfold the purpose of life here. It says to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's the purpose of human beings, is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Well, great. Thanks for the churchy language, Pastor Mike. Let's just close in prayer. I don't really understand how I'm supposed to do that. It sounds weird. It sounds hard. I don't really glorify God. Okay, well, how do we do that? And how does Jesus make it possible to glorify God? That's what I hope and I have prayed and continue to pray that Matthew will show us this morning. Let's jump, as Piero read, into Matthew 17. Last week, we looked at some very powerful words of Jesus after his own prediction of his death and resurrection, of exactly what it means to be his disciple. A disciple focuses on the plan of God over and above our own plan. Many times the plan of God comes in contradiction and conflict with our own plans, of course, and we submit to the plan of God. A disciple answers the radical call to deny themselves, take up their crosses, and follow Jesus. And a disciple knows that all that is worth it because Jesus has gone before us and Jesus has done the work and Jesus has done those things. And so therefore, because the reality of Jesus' life exists and Jesus himself exists, we have the motivation to follow him. But also, as we saw last week, Jesus signaled a major change to his disciples. From now on, he said, from this day forward, he said, things are going to get more and more intense. You're going to see things that are going to now get us closer to the cross. You're going to see things before your own eyes that you will not believe. And he prophesied a little bit last week when he said that the disciples will not believe their eyes. The things that you will see. Some of you standing here will still see these things. And we're going to see some of those things today. Jesus, again, is going to mention his own death and resurrection. But not before something truly amazing happens. Look again at just verse 1. After six days... Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and he led them up a high mountain by themselves. Okay, so a few contextual details we just got to unpack here in this first verse. Matthew tells us that there's a gap of exactly six days, which is kind of weird. Not usually the, the, the gospel writers specify such a specific time. Mark says it was eight days, or Luke says it was eight days, rather. We have the luxury of having this account in the other two synoptic gospels as well. This is a major event, as we'll see. Not really sure exactly why it was in and around a week. Probably means they were just staying local. Probably means they were still around the region of Caesarea Philippi. Next, the text tells us that Jesus brought a subset of his disciples. He only brought Peter, James, and John. And, and as we will see in the other disciples and, or gospels, we have seen that this is his inner circle. This is his established practice that Jesus has his disciples and then he has his close friends. Now, aren't we like that as well? We have our friends and then we have our, our close friends as well. So Jesus and his three closest friends head up the mountain. It says a high mountain by themselves. Two other questions immediately come to mind. Okay, so what mountain and what were they doing up there? 
Luke tells us that Jesus was praying. And of course, that is no shock because we, we know that's what Jesus does. Jesus likes to get away and likes to be by himself and, and he's brought his three closest friends with him and he gets away to pray. And again, if Jesus needs to get away and pray, how much more so do we need to get away and pray? And also, what mountain? And this, of course, has been the source of debate for centuries. Lots and lots of ink has been spilled in commentator land about what mountain it is. I think there are two possibilities. And yes, I have a happy little map for you. This is where Caesarea, where am I going here? Here we go. Caesarea Philippi is up here, okay? And there's a mountain there. I have no idea where my map program decided Mount Hermon would need to be that big, but you can read that from the back, so that's good. That's one possibility, Mount Hermon. The other possibility is way down here in Galilee, in Mount Tabor. And this is the popular spot. And as you can imagine, this is close to Jerusalem and everything down there. Close, You can sell a lot more tchotchkes, and you can have a lot more tourists come by when it's in the, up there. It's kind of way out of the way. So traditionally... People say it's Mount Tabor. A lot of guys think it is Mount Hermon. We don't know. We don't know for sure. But we know that he was in and around that area and on a mountain. So great. Let's review. It's been about a week. They're probably still in the immediate area. Jesus heads up to the top of a mountain to pray with his three closest disciples in his inner circle. And then it gets nuts. Look at verse 2. And he was transfigured there before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. Our text tells us that he was transfigured before them. Another word for transfigured is transformed. The Greek, it's metamorphal, which you can kind of understand. That's where we get our, our word metamorphosis. There's some sort of physical transformation that's happening here. Our text tells us that Jesus' face shone like the sun and his clothes were so white, they were white as light. And what exactly is happening here? Let's remember the confession that Jesus, the, the disciples rather, just proclaimed about Jesus Christ, right? A couple weeks ago, they said, Peter said and led them in the, in the common belief that you are the Christ, the son of the living God, and Jesus affirmed that is true. Now he is showing them that that is true. One theologian noted that the transfiguration is an illumination of Jesus from within, a revelation of his divine glory. And Jesus showed them who he is, showed them that he's God through the miracles. He has told them he is God through his words. Now he is physically showing them a bit of his deity through this crazy event on top of a mountain. And it only gets more confirmed in the next part of the episode. Look at verse 3. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with them. Okay, so they're up on the mountain. Jesus goes through this physical transformation. They're blinded by this light of who Jesus is, right? His face is shining. His clothes are even shining, and then out of all this, they see Moses and Elijah standing there with them, talking to Jesus. Luke, again, gives us more detail. It's usually surprising. Mark is usually the one that gives us more detail, but Luke is the one that gives us more detail, and here's why. Side note, this is for free. Because Peter is the one, is the source for Mark's gospel. 
And Peter's there. So Peter tells, tells Luke a lot more in that little scenario there. So Luke tells us that they're talking with Jesus about Jesus' departure, meaning his death. Moses and Elijah are literally talking to Jesus about the plan of the cross that is going to happen. Moses and Elijah, of course, are both towering figures in the Old Testament. And by appearing here with Jesus Christ, we can immediately see the connection that Jesus is connecting himself with the Old Testament. The literal connection, the literal fulfillment of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, which is now being fulfilled in Jesus Christ. You could draw tons of parallels between Moses and Elijah, and there have been tons of parallels that have been drawn between Moses and Elijah. Why Moses and Elijah? Why are they there? Again, many, many, many pages have been spilled by commentators with thick glasses and patches on their elbows about why is Moses and Elijah. But here's one of the most important ones. Moses being the one who received the law from God on Mount Sinai. And Elijah, one of the great prophets and forerunners of the Messiah. Both here together with Jesus in full view of the Gospels. And what did Jesus tell us himself in his own words back in chapter 5 and verse 17? He says this, Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. What we most likely have here is a physical representation between Moses, who is the, the law, and Elijah, who is the prophets. Jesus physically saying, yeah, I've come to fulfill the law and the prophets, and guess what? I brought two friends to show you that. To show you that physically. Jesus is now physically, physically and visibly proving that he is God and fulfillment of the entire Old Testament. Another really important note about Moses and Elijah, they both had theophanies. When we talk theophanies, it's talking about a vision of God, right? a sight of God. Moses, of course, saw God in the burning bush. And Elijah saw God on the mountaintop. He saw part of his glory. He saw him once, once or twice. Moses actually saw him twice, but we're reminded the glory of God, the vision of God, Moses and Elijah. It's, it's both kind of questionable. Elijah, of course, we know was taken up to heaven in a whirlwind, as First as Kings tells us, right? Moses himself, he just, God just said, go up on that mountain and die. And they never really had a funeral. So as urban legend says, maybe Moses really actually just got taken up to heaven too. And so these things, all of these things are in the mix here. And putting all the pieces together from the first part, Jesus not only shows them his divine glory, but he also shows them that he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament in the law and the prophets. And here's the point. Jesus the Christ manifests the glory of God. Jesus, the Christ, manifests the glory of God. Scripture proclaims as preeminent the glory of God. And Jesus manifests that glory. To manifest something is to show something, to display something. In other words, we see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul tells us that directly in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Verses 5 and 6, I think I put this in your bulletins. He says, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For the God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, right, at creation, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, watch this, in the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ displays the glory of God. 
The glory of God is seen in the face of Jesus Christ. You want to see God clearly? You want to know the power and the presence of God? Look to Jesus Christ. You want to, you want to see those things in your life? Look to Jesus Christ. It seems like a, bitty, a pretty basic part of my job, right? Point you to God. Point you to Jesus. Point you to Jesus as the glory of God. Encourage you to seek after a deeper knowledge of God in your actual lives, to experience the power and presence of God in your lives, and you do that by knowing more of Jesus Christ. God, the almighty creator of the world, as Paul told us in that verse, created light to shine in the darkness of creation, and he said, let there be light, and creation happened, and he does the same thing in the hearts of non-believers. He says, let there be light, and he shines the light in the darkness, and he creates new life, that same God, and he does it through the glory of himself, through Jesus Christ. The creator gives the creatures then new hearts to know him and understand him, and he does that through knowing Jesus Christ. General revelation is clear. God exists. All you have to do is step outside. Many of us were commenting on the, the, the beauty of the winter, the beauty of the trees all covered in ice and then the sun behind it and all of that glory. All you have to do to know God exists is walk outside. But creation can't tell you about that God. They can't tell you that you are lost apart from God. And then most importantly, creation can't tell you how to be reconciled to that God. How does that happen? Only in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the special revelation, the word of God, the word made flesh. We understand our position before God. We understand what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the manifestation of the glory of God. Only Jesus does this. The disciples see it clearly on that mountain. And as you might expect, seeing all this happen, they're more than a little shook. Let's look at the next part. Verse 4, 17, back in Matthew. He says this, And Peter says to Jesus, I love Peter so much, Lord, it is good that you're here, that we're here together. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, when behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and they were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. So, so Peter, so good. Some, some commentators here want to read all of this like theological depth into Peter's remarks right here. I don't read much of any theological depth into Peter's remarks here. He's completely losing his mind at this moment. And we all have those friends when we're in those situations when we're totally nervous and something happens and you got that one friend that just starts nannering on with just stuff of, what are you even talking about right now? Right? We all have, we do. Some of you do that. I understand that, right? He's, he literally said, this all goes down. Jesus physically is manifested before him, blazing light. Moses and Elijah show up, and he goes, hey, wow, look, look at that. Moses and Elijah are here, too. Cool. Cool, cool, cool. Um, 
why do you know I could uh, you know what we need we need we need tents can I make some I make some, I'm gonna make some I'm gonna make some tents tents are good I'm gonna tent. I'll make one for you I'll make one for you I'll make one for you that'd be good Read the tents tents who wants a tent come on raise your hand right this this is essentially what Peter's doing right now he's losing it that awkward situation and he reacts poorly and he says says stuff that makes no sense. Now, now, to be fair, okay, there may be something that Peter's clinging on to. We remember the Old Testament. We remember all their memorials and all their feasts. We remember the Feast of the Shelters, the Feast of the Booths. Now, now maybe Peter is thinking, hey, this would be a pretty good, I mean, this doesn't happen every day, right? Jesus is transformed before us. We see Moses and Elijah. Maybe I should, like, make something to memorialize this event up here on this mountain. Maybe, I don't think so, but maybe... That could be. The best part is in the passage. Look at it. He keeps talking. Look at verse 5. He's still speaking. He's still there nannering on about tents and who wants one and all this other stuff. And then the cloud comes down as he's still speaking. Again, we all have that one friend, right, who just continues to talk and talk and talk, right? I know that because sometimes, sometimes I put you in an awkward situation and I know you're nervous because you just keep talking and talking and talking. I understand that. Matthew says he just keeps talking. Something else happens again while he's there nannering on about tents. A cloud appears. It takes over all of them. A bright cloud takes over all of them and then a voice comes from the cloud and says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Lots of things continue to come together again, right? First of all, we have the cloud. What's the deal with the cloud? Why the cloud? Well, if you know your Old Testament, you remember that a cloud often symbolized the presence of God himself. You remember that Israel during the wandering years, right? The tabernacle, the cloud would be with them. And when the cloud moved, they moved. And when the cloud stopped, they stopped. It was the presence of God. I was reading in Exodus over the yearly read. Anybody with me? Come on. We just, did the, we just did the Red Sea and all that. One thing I never noticed before is when they got to the Red Sea and all the Egyptian army is hot on their tail, what happened? Where did the cloud go? The cloud moved from the front of them to the back of them. Literally stood in between them and the Egyptian army and the Red Sea. So you got the Red Sea, you got Israel, and then the cloud moves between them and Egypt also was the angel of the Lord, which is talk about your theophanies. That's a separate sermon entirely. The cloud symbolizing the presence of God, the power of God, the power and the presence of God in the cloud. When Moses was on Sinai, what else was with Sinai? This huge cloud, right, that covered the entire mountain. Israel down on the ground, shaking in their boots, saying, whoever's talking, don't let them talk anymore because we're going to die. We're not coming up there. We don't want anything to do with this presence of God in the cloud. But the second thing that shakes out of this, this part, of course, is the voice. And it's a familiar voice. We've heard this voice before. Maybe some of you can remember, probably last year, at Jesus' baptism, which I put in your bulletins as Matthew, Matthew 4, which is actually Matthew 3. Let's look at that. Starting in Matthew 3, 13. And Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And he consented. 
And when Jesus was baptized, immediately went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him, kind of like a cloud. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. It's almost like the whole Bible tells one story, right? We see this. Want one more Moses connection? Matthew adds the line, listen to him. We didn't see that in the baptism narrative, but we see it in in Matthew in the transfiguration narrative. He adds the line, listen to him. This is actually very, very significant because talking about Moses again, Moses himself in one of the greatest Old Testament prophecies of the Messiah coming, Deuteronomy 18.15 says, the Lord your God, speaking to Israel, will rise, raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. All of that's coming together on the mountaintop. He says, this is him. Listen to him. You've got to know the disciples are putting all these pieces together in their heads. And how do they react? They fall face down, completely terrified. Probably not many dry robes around there going on at this point. They're terrified. Terrified at the voice of God, terrified at the presence of God, terrified at the glory of God. Jesus, and lovingly, I love, he, he's, all his disciples are flat out, right? And he's probably chuckling to himself a little bit. And, and it, you know, Matthew's very kind, and the Greek says, rise. He's, he just says, get up, get up, get up, get up, stop, get up. I'm here. And that's kind of, that, it's kind of that, that thing that we say. Jesus touched them, right, it says. Matthew tells us he touched them. And he tells them, get up. I'm here. Have no fear. He says, get up. I'm here. The Messiah's come. They look up and what do they see? They only see Jesus now. Everybody else is gone. No more cloud. No more brightness. No more friends from the Old Testament. Just Jesus. Another physical representation that what? Jesus is what we need. Jesus, Jesus is what we need. Notice, notice what he does. He goes from that moment of complete and utter terror at the presence of God, that they know that they're sinful men, and that's what every single one of us would feel in the presence of God. And Jesus is there again in the middle, mediating the presence of God. That's the point. Jesus mediates the terrifying presence of God. Jesus mediates the terrifying presence of God. Could you imagine being on that mountain without Jesus? They would be smoldering piles of dust for sure. But because Jesus is there, he says, get up, have no fear. I am here. And that's when we think about the presence of God. Apart from Jesus, there is only fear. With Jesus, though, he mediates that presence. He brings fear into peace with God. We have lost so much grip on the glory of God, the fear of God in the church. And of course, the deconversional, progressive Christianity, agnostic people now have a field day with this and say, well, that's, it's, I do not want a God. That, I'm not going to worship a God that I fear. I'm not going to worship a, a God that demands that I fear him. That's not the kind of God I like. Well, it's nice, but you don't get to pick your own God. <laughs> we got to go with how God revealed himself to be in his word. And God is a God to be feared. But balance what's going on here. Jesus mediates the terrifying presence of God. 
So it is not just only fear. It is peace. It is acceptance. It is forgiveness. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, Scripture tells us. But we're reminded that through Jesus Christ, he made reconciliation for us. Ask Isaiah, of course, when he was in the presence of God, what did he say in Isaiah 6? What was me? I'm a dead man. I cannot be in his presence. I am a sinner. That's the, the whole point of the good news of Jesus Christ, right? Is apart from, apart from Jesus, we are smoldering piles of dust because we are sinners separated from the wrath of a holy, perfect God. That's the point of the gospel. The point of the gospel is we need someone to mediate God's presence for us or else apart from that, we have no hope. But with Christ, we have hope. Timothy tells us this point blank in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, one of my, my favorite passages. He says, For there is one God, there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. That's our mediator. That's our Jesus. And how we have lost that in the church today, in the evangelical church today, the Jesus-centered gospel, the glory of God, the fear of God, and Jesus being our hope has been replaced with a man-centered gospel. Here's how one author puts it. It is this God, majestic and holy in his being, who has disappeared from the modern evangelical world. The center of evangelical Christianity is fundamentally the self, my need of salvation. And God is auxiliary, auxiliary to that. Quite a lot of evangelical Christianity can easily slip and can become centered on me and my need of salvation and not the glory of God. That's what we've lost, right? And I guarantee that Peter, James, and John are not thinking about how Jesus can get them to the next level of their careers right now. They're terrified. Jesus mediates the terrifying presence of God, and we need him to do that, church. But we also need to take encouragement. Again, here comes the balance, right? That's what the, the progressive Christianity agnostic, like, you know, Christian kids gone bad, right? That's what they're all reacting to. So it's all about the fear of God. It's like, well, yes, God needs to be feared, but there's balance. And sorry if you didn't hear the balance, but Scripture tells us the balance, the balance is the grace of God, the mediation of Jesus Christ, right? The balance is this. We need to take encouragement from the words of God the Father, even what he just said. He says to all, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. When we talk about fearing the terrifying presence of God, we've got to balance it with the love of our heavenly Father and the fact that he is pleased with us in Jesus Christ. One author writes it this way, the father loves the son, period, without qualification. The declaration is now over the lives of all who are in Christ. His banner over each of us reads, this is my beloved child with whom I am well pleased. And maybe we just need to soak in that a little bit this morning. Maybe we just need to say to ourselves that God really isn't disappointed in you. That he looks at you and says, this is my child in whom I am well pleased. Through Jesus Christ, and only through Jesus Christ. That's how. Church, do we know this deep in our souls? That this God, with his terrifying presence, loves us. 
And as his child, he is pleased with us in Jesus Christ. It's not clear how long they remained on that mountain processing everything that is taking place, but eventually they made their way down the mountain. Let's see what happens then. Back in Matthew 17, verse 9, he says, And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that Elijah must come? And he answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but they did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. So they head down the mountain. The fairly standard instructions from Jesus say, listen, don't tell anybody about this. (laughs) They must have been trading looks for sure. Like, okay, don't tell anybody. All right. All right, we'll, we'll try. This is like the craziest thing. We probably still have our faces are probably glowing from the presence of the Lord and the cloud and Elijah and Moses. We're, okay, 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 cool. We're not going to tell anybody about it. But Jesus had a condition. He says, until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. Third time now over the last two passages that we've studied, he has directly talked about his death and his resurrection. Again, cross is not a reaction. Cross is not something that went wrong and Jesus says, well, what am I going to do? The cross is not Jesus messing up and getting himself nailed to a cross, right? The cross is not the victory of evil men. The cross is a plan and it's a glorious plan of salvation. And while they're talking theology, it seems like a good idea for them to ask some theological questions. The disciples must have been thinking deeply and they said to Jesus, hey, um, Boss, question. We understand everything that just happened up there. Still, still working through some of the parts, but you know, we, we got it. You're God, clearly. Like, there's, there's no, no, no doubt that now. But theologically, as I remember in Sunday school, that Elijah is supposed to come first, and then the Messiah comes. And, and it seems kind of backwards. But chronologically, you came, and then we saw Elijah up there, which was awesome and all. That was really cool. But he was supposed to come first, so can you help us understand that? It's a good question, because traditionally, the prophecies of the Messiah said directly that before the Messiah comes, there will be one who comes, Elijah. Specifically, he's talking about the Italian prophet Malachi, Malachi 3.1. That's Ryan's joke. I just have to say it every time. <laughs> Malachi 3.1, he says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So, yeah, true, they saw Elijah on the mountain, but they're also talking about this specific prophecy from Malachi that said someone has to come first. And that person, coming first being Elijah, will prepare the way for the Lord. Right? He's like, you're right. Jesus agrees. Yep, Elijah will come. He will restore all things. And there probably was this kind of, you know, a little bit of a gap of few moments waiting for the, the you know, the, the pin to, pinball to drop in the slot. And like, did you get it? Do you remember? It's already happened. We've actually already talked about this, guys, in chapter 11. This is John the Baptist. He already did come. Elijah did come. So you're right. 
He is supposed to come first before me, and he did. And his name was John the Baptist. He was the voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Matthew, of course, makes that point blank specific in verse 16, or 13. He says the same thing, that they're talking about John the Baptist. He tells them, yep, that's what I'm telling you. And then he adds this part in there at the end. He says, yeah, and they didn't recognize him either. They didn't understand that he was the Elijah to come. They didn't understand him, and they did whatever they wanted to. And we already learned that he was martyred for his, for his stance against Herod. He was martyred for his sticking up for, for Jesus and the law of God. They didn't understand who John the Baptist was, and they, they killed him. And he says, guess what? They don't understand who I am, and they're going to kill me too. He says that point blank. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. This is the kind of talk that the disciples really probably hated to hear when he started talking about this. They're like, again with this, why are you talking about how you're going to die? We don't want to talk about that. That's not the way this is supposed to go. And Jesus reminds them, no, this is the way it's supposed to go. Not only was Elijah the forerunner, not only was John the Baptist the forerunner, John the Baptist was killed, they didn't recognize him, I'm also going to suffer at their hands too. This is the way it's going to go, and that's the way it's supposed to go. Putting the pieces together, Jesus fulfills the mission of God through sacrifice. Jesus fulfills the mission of God through sacrifice. Again, this is so mind-blowing that Jesus has to keep repeating it because the disciples don't want to hear it. This is the new messianic paradigm. The old messianic paradigm is what everybody was looking for was a triumphant warrior messiah to drive right through town in a tank and kick Rome out and restore their land to themselves, to be this victorious messiah. You don't want a humble messiah that's going to end up dead on a Roman cross. That, that, that's, that doesn't fit. That's not what they need. Yet that is the plan of God. And Jesus reminds them again. He says, yes, I'm the Messiah. I'm here to fulfill the mission of God. And I'm sorry, that's not what you thought it was, but that's the way it's going to go. Just like they did to John the Baptist. I'm going to fulfill the mission of God and I'm going to do that through sacrifice. This kind of goes back to what we said a few weeks ago. What kind of Jesus are we looking for? Are we looking for just the Jesus that's supposed to make our lives comfortable and happy and take away all the pain? Or are we looking for the Jesus that calls us to sacrifice like he did? to deny ourselves, to take up our cross and follow him? Are we looking for the Jesus of the Bible? Because the Jesus of the Bible is about sacrifice, but it's also about sacrifice and humility. Remember what Jesus said about himself in chapter 11, verses 28. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus doesn't call us, and Jesus certainly didn't call himself at this time to be the powerful warrior Messiah who's going to come into town and destroy all his enemies. He says, I'm coming in humility, and I'm coming in a way that you would never expect, and I'm coming, and I will die. That's how I'm coming. You've got to be like me. You've got to be humble. You've got to be ready to die to yourselves. You've got to understand that's, what, that's the great paradox. God's glory then comes how? In suffering and in humility, in gentleness, in lowliness. 
from the moment he condescended to earth to be born in a place where livestock were. He's been all about humility and sacrifice, and Jesus fulfills the mission of God through sacrifice. God's glory is seen in Jesus in humility, not triumph and war. That's coming. Yeah, I know, that's the cool part too. That's coming, right? Is that, that's the fourth part of the story. Jesus will return, and then it will be about displaying his glory when he rides in on the white horse, tatted up with the sword, ready for battle, and he's going to then judge all of his enemies for eternity. That's coming, but not now. And Jesus says, your road is like my road, sacrifice and humility until that time. And how about us? How do, we, how do we display this glory then in our actual lives? Is it to be the, the humblest, crawling around our faces in the dust, thinking of ourselves as worms and not worthy of anything? Or, or it, maybe it's the opposite of that, right? To think that we are the greatest. To think that because of Jesus Christ in us, that, that we are supposed to be the best self that we possibly can be. Maybe it's about making ourselves look glorious as the followers of Jesus. It is not about that either. That is the false teaching of the prosperity gospel. It's not about either of those things. It's not about pointing to ourselves in either way, whether it is we are so lowly or we are so great, but it is about what? Pointing to Jesus Christ as the center of our lives and the ultimate of God's glory. It's about Jesus. It's about his glory, and it's about us being transformed into his likeness to look more like Jesus. And so hopefully I can pull these strands together this morning and put it this way. The more like Jesus we become, the more of God's glory we display. The more like Jesus we become, the more of God's glory we display. What is the transfiguration about? In one word, glory. It's about God's glory being shown through Jesus Christ. It's about the demonstration, the manifestation of Jesus visibly, physically as God. And we see that, proving in that, in that sense, in a physical sense. But we, as his followers, as the Westminster Catechism reminded us, we're called to do the same thing, display that glory, glorify God and enjoy him together. Okay, again, thanks, Pastor Mike, but how do I do that? Now I have all this pressure to be more like Jesus and glorify him. And therein lies the other paradox. And sure, there is work. I'm not going to, don't mishear me. There is work. There is effort. We have to toil and struggle with all of our energy. But all of that strength comes from where? It comes from him. It comes from Jesus. And that's the paradox. That true work of the heart is done by him. It's done by the Holy Spirit. We work, but he works in us. The reality is that Jesus, as our mediator, has perfectly done the work so we actually can, in fact, glorify God in our actual lives. He perfectly accomplished the mission of God in the gospel, and he did that through sacrifice. And that's what he calls us to do as well. In fact, sacrifice is the very means that he uses to glorify himself in us. We see that when the true work of God is done by the Holy Spirit as we endeavor to follow Jesus and catch this, watch this. As we do that, he transforms us. He actually transfigures us into the image of Christ, into the image of his glory. 
Paul says that point blank in 2 Corinthians 3, 18. He says, and we with unveiled face, right? Like those on the mountaintop seeing this unveiled face, beholding the glory of God are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. And this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. That word, transformed, metamorphal. That word, we are, we are being transfigured into one degree of glory to the next. And so as we become more like Jesus Christ, bit by bit, degree by degree, sin by sin, maturity level by maturity level, what happens? Jesus is transfiguring us into his glory through the Holy Spirit. And church, the more we give ourselves over to Jesus, the more we go through our own transfiguration. We are transfigured and transformed more and more into what? The image of Jesus, degree by degree. And here's how this practically looks in our lives. You're convicted about a sin. You know you need to grow and you need to change more into the image of Jesus. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, you do it. One degree. You go that bit. You grow that bit. I want to be diligent in what God called me to in my job, despite the fact that my boss is a jerk. I want to not lose it with the kids. And I showed patience and grace today. I did it. Degree of transformation into the glory of God. I said no to looking at those images that I don't need to look at online. I said no to gluttony or gossip or whatever today. Degree by his power and grace transfigured. You just displayed a degree of God's glory through your sanctification. And if the goal of our lives as Christians is to show the glory of God, then the more like Jesus we become, that's how that happens. We fight sin, we put it to death, we do it in his power because Jesus came first. Jesus did the work and we display his glory. And that happens as we behold Jesus as the manifestation of God's glory. We say, I have no other hope apart from Jesus Christ. He's it. He's God's glory. I want to look like him, and I want to show that in my actual life, degree by degree, right? Again, through sacrifice, because I don't know if you guys know it or not, but saying no to sin is hard. That's the sacrifice part. We do that, and as we go and we grow, we display his glory. The more we live in community with each other, the more we point out those degrees. That is such a powerful thing to do when we see each other in community and we say, guess what? I just saw a little bit of the transfiguration of God's glory in you and the way you responded to that. I just saw God's grace in you when you said that. I saw God's grace and God's glory in you when you reacted to your child who was having a meltdown in the lobby about that. I saw that. I saw that. Do that, church. Point out God's grace in each other and celebrate the glory of God at work, transfiguring us from one degree of glory to the next. We glorify God and we do that by becoming more like Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this amazing transfiguration account that, that is hard for us to understand. But Lord, we are thankful and so much of it we don't understand and we just submit and bow down and worship as we sing. We fall down before your throne as we sang for who you are. Lord, apart from Jesus Christ, we have no hope. Apart from Jesus Christ, there only is fear of judgment. But through our mediator, there is love, there is acceptance and we know that through Jesus, you say to us, you are our beloved or we are your beloved sons and daughters and we are well pleasing to you. 
We pray that we would do as the voice commanded from the cloud, listen to him. Help us, Lord, as we seek to be transformed from one degree of glory to the next. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen.